thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to today's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. And I think today, beginning today, and and probably for the next week or two, we're going to have a most interesting and provocative um, series of podcasts dealing with the difference between how we conceive of law today and the way the Bible would have us conceive of law and how that difference works itself out in the legislation we present, in the legal arguments we make in the courts, and I think it will be um, revelatory, to be honest. It, it has been to me. Now let me get into today's topic, and it's really in follow-up to last week. Um, last week I noted that many Christians who labor in the public policy sphere, who commendably desire to uphold their understanding of biblical law, will effectively adopt a humanistic, positivistic, pragmatic, utilitarian view of the law for the sake of forming alliances that they hope will add political synergies toward passing legislation. If we can gather enough power together, find enough common ground to, to come together for something we can overcome the opposing forces and pass the law. Today, I'd like to add that many of the Christian legal advocates who operate in courtrooms, rightly seeking to defend that legislation, do the same thing. They adopt a humanistic, positivistic view of law. And the troubling aspect to me of that is that many of those who work in the policy sphere who are not lawyers actually follow their lead. In other words, if you tell me this is the best way to defend something in court, this is the kind of argument that I will make. So the lawyers who advocate in the courtrooms in this policy sphere are especially influential. And beginning today, and perhaps for the next week or so, I want to help you understand what is happening at a fundamental level and how that approach of using a positivistic conception of law creates a number of problems that I believe are very serious. Now, I said fundamental, and it grieves me to say that this is a fundamental problem, not just a, a difference of tactical approaches. And it grieves me even more to say that I've come to believe the approach that we are using in public policy and in the courtrooms defending those public policies is an abandonment of Christianity. Now, I realize that's a strong statement. So beginning today, for the next week or two, I need to substantiate my conclusion to you. 
should just make the statement without substantiating it. And that's what I'm going to begin to do. Now, to do that, let me lay out the big picture of what we're going to be doing starting today and then over the next couple of weeks. We'll have to start with a basic understanding of common law. So for those of you who want to get a better grip on the common law and know why in the world I speak so much about it, well, this episode today in particular is for you. We won't get into all that the common law is, and I, I will come back and do a, a, a better, bigger, fuller series on that. But we have to get some grasp of it to understand this um, fundamental level problem taking place in our thinking about law, our conception of law, and our jurisprudence. And then we're going to compare that to the conception of law that's found in the Bible. And I think when we're done, when this little series is over, when you see what common law is in comparison to both the conception of law in the Bible and the conception of common law as it's understood today, I think you will conclude, as I have, that a fundamental cosmological problem is exposed when Christian lawyers and policy advocates eschew learning about the common law, let alone using it. And I think you'll see why that is such a problem. In fact, I'm going to demonstrate that problem in the final part of this little mini-series in the context of parental rights. And I'm going to show you how Christians trying to defend parental rights in our nation's courtrooms are actually destroying real parental rights. It's scary stuff, but I'll show you. So that's the big end picture. You know where we're going to be going over this week and the next couple of episodes. So I wanted to, to do that. But today I want to lay out the specifics of this program. I'm going to begin by sharing some comments about common law by a professor of common law from whom I've learned so much over the last seven years. And I'll be commenting some on what he said to make sure it's intelligible to you. Then I'm going to contrast what this professor of common law has said with that of audio statements made by a Republican member of the Tennessee House who is a lawyer. And I think what you will learn is that this lawyer has no understanding of what law or the common law is or the function of the legislative body in which he serves. And, and while I, I don't know if he's a Christian, never seen him profess to be, never heard him deny it either, there's actually little difference in his understanding of common law from that of the Christians that I know in the field of public policy. And again, before I get too far into this, let me say it is only by the grace of God that I was rescued from this humanistic approach to law and public policy. It's what I've done most of my life. So, you know, this is not, this is not me saying I'm better. 
God has graciously rescued me from the view of law, the conception of law that I once held. I was trained in the same way in my law school as those lawyers about whom I've been speaking. And I had no theological framing from all my years in the church by which to evaluate, let, let alone resist, what I was being taught. I didn't know there was any other conception of law other than the one being taught to me in law school. So I'm not saying that anyone is consciously rejecting God or rejecting a biblical cosmology, only that so many of my colleagues were probably educated in the godless view of law that I was educated in, and they don't even realize, as was true of me, that the legal and jurisprudential water they're swimming in is polluted. They're just doing what I did because I was raised in the same polluted stream of jurisprudence they were. So my heart, hear me, as we go into this material today and next week, is not to be a backbench critic lobbing bombs, but to help you learn what I've learned. Now, to get to where we need to go, as I said, we're going to have to touch on common law a bit. And, a, and the cosmological shift that took place in the late 1800s that engulfed America's jurisprudence and changed our conception of common law. Marx was a materialist, and I think it was Marx who essentially indicated that when you can change the person's conception of the heavens, you change their conception of the earth. Okay, so when our cosmology shifts, everything else shifts with it. Cosmology is the big picture of the nature of things and how they work. And when we change our understanding of the nature of things and how they work, that, well, that changes everything. And that's what happened with respect to common law. Now, to this end, I'm going to read and comment on some remarks on common law made to a group of lawyers in Washington, D.C. last spring by a fellow believer, Adam McLeod, a professor of common law, and he's he's one of the ones God has used to rescue me from the polluted waters of humanism in which I was swimming. So let me begin with the beginning of his remarks. Here we go. Let's start, he said, by stating clearly what common law is not. Common law is not judge-made law. Right there, there would be people who'd say, wait a minute, that is exactly what common law is. That's what they teach at the Nashville School of Law here. I've seen the handout for the course. The professor continued. That distortion of the common law, the idea that the common law is judge-made law, was Invented by Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. If you don't know who he is, he was an avowed atheist, Darwinian, and he began to push evolutionary Darwinian 
concepts into law and into America's jurisprudence. And then, McLeod says, it was popularized in the elite law schools in the 20th century and has dominated American legal education for 100 years. Now let me read that whole sentence without interrupting myself. Let's start by stating clearly what common law is not. Common law is not judge-made law. That distortion of the common law, invented by Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. and popularized in elite law schools in the 20th century, has dominated American legal education for 100 years. So that's what I'm saying. Everybody that's a contemporary of mine or even a few years older than, uh, than me, and certainly those younger than me, they've all been awash in only one understanding of the common law and that it is judge-made law. But that's not what it is, and it's an invention of the mind of an atheist. Professor McLeod continues, but it, referring to what I just said, makes a hash of the concept of law, adjudication, rights and duties, and much else. Now, the important thing in that sentence is that he says it makes a hash of the concept of law. See, most of us today don't really have a concept of law. Law is just what the legislature says or the Supreme Court says. But a conception of law? Uh, well, it's really that. See, the fact that we would even say what's a conception of law or, or, or might realize we don't have a real conception of law is evidence that we've all been swimming in this humanistic, positivistic view of law. McLeod continues, the prevailing idea that legal rights and duties are merely means to predict how judges will rule renders legal rights and duties meaningless. Well, that's a very important statement. In other words, he's saying what has happened is law is not a real thing. Law is simply predicting how judges will rule. And what he says here is when you're only interested in predicting how judges will rule, you're conceding, essentially, that there are no real or meaningful legal rights and duties. Because then it wouldn't be a predictive fa factor, it would be a, a legal argument, you see. And this goes back to what I was saying last week when I was talking about Jeff Schaefer. The court has limited what counts as, quote, law to its own opinions, as if there's nothing outside the minds of the judges written into an essay that can even constitute law, and that's why law has become a question of can you predict which way the judge will rule which means essentially that there are no meaningful rights and duties. So anyway, McLeod continues, as the legal philosopher H.L.A. Hart, that's H-A-R-T, observed more than a half century ago, 
they obscured and denigrated the perspective of the law-abiding judge. Now, that in itself seems to be almost an oxymoron. How can you have a judge that's not law-abiding since the judge is making the law? But therein lies the problem. See, if the judge is making the law, then why can't he make whatever law he wants? See? And so he said, the real conception of law, the one that existed before Oliver Wendell Holmes got his atheist clause on our conception of law, and the elite law schools began to teach it, was the person who understood himself or herself as not making law, but rather obeying it, rendering judgment according to it. So in other words, the law was something outside the judge that the judge, through study, through wisdom, through revelation, would determine Hmm, you know, you came into the restaurant, ordered a lobster dinner, and dashed out without paying for it. That's stealing, and you need to pay, whether there's a statute or not on it, right? And he's not making up that law and saying, mm, I think there ought to be a thing called stealing. We know that there's a law against stealing. So the law-abiding judge isn't making the law. He's trying to discern what it is. This is what McLeod is saying, and apply it to the situation. Then he continues with the contrast. Elite legal educators, that's who he's referring to, who's been propagating this false view of common law over the last hundred years, they moved the law-abiding judge to the periphery and the lawless judge to the center. And what does he mean by that? In other words, they move the person who does not believe there's any law outside of the judge, that the, that the judge is required to, to learn and discern and to apply, but creates the law. That's who they put in the center. The lawless judge, the judge who's not bound by any law, but what's in his head. Okay? McLeod continues. Holmes normalized judicial activism. Now, how is that? Well, it's because the judge is making up the law as he goes along. That's judicial activism. Now you're beginning to see the roots of what's, what's changed in our nation. And judicial supremacy in American jurisprudence. And their defamation of the common law played a significant role in that normalization. Now let me read that sentence again because I broke it up with my own commentary. But he says, Holmes and his colleagues normalized judicial activism and judicial supremacy in American jurisprudence and their defamation of the common law played a significant role in that normalization. So when the judge is making up the law, and making up the constitutional law, that leads to judicial supremacy. And all of that is a consequence of what McLeod described as a defamation and a distortion of common law and the conception of law itself. Read any jurist prior to Holmes and most 
of the lawful jurist who came after him, and it becomes clear that the power of the judge to render judgment depends upon her ability to declare what the law is rather than to invent it. In other words, prior to Holmes and all these elite jurists, you had to know what the law is. You didn't invent it. He continues, the common law then is not whatever the judges say it is. The job of the judge is to discern what the law is, to state the law as clearly as possible, and then apply the law to the case pending. This was the conception of common law that all the American founders took for granted, which Justice Marshall affirmed in Marbury versus Madison, which Abraham Lincoln learned from reading the great English jurist William Blackstone and then deployed in his criticism of Dred Scott versus Sanford, and which Justice Jackson reaffirmed a century and a half later in Morissette versus United States. So there we see the real understanding of common law, which effectively rested on a biblical cosmology that God has created the world, created the universe, created things such that there is a law woven into the reality of things that we don't create and invent, but that the judge confronts and has to realize and recognize. Well, uh, I'd wanted to get to the audio of the remarks made by the Republican lawyer in the State House here in Tennessee that gives the new conception of common law. But I can't do it justice without this program running really long today. So I hope you will keep in mind what I've said today. I'll give you a bit of a refresher next week. And then I'm going to play the testimony of this lawyer and comment on it and then give you some historical facts from the state of Tennessee about the importance of common law that shows that this lawyer is ignorant of the thing in which he professes to be an expert and of the history of law itself. And that'll probably take most of next week, and then the, the next week following that, I'm going to look at the biblical conception of law by using audio of remarks made by a professor of biblical law at the University of Bristol Law School in England. And when you've hear what he has to say, compare it to what this House member has to say, and compare it to what Adam McLeod said that we talked about today, you will see that we are in a mess when it comes to law in the United States. Well, thank you for joining me today. I hope this understanding is a little touch on common law has been helpful to you and i hope you'll join me again next week for another episode of god law and liberty if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to the podcast and if you want to help spread the word 
please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.